Hello guys and welcome to episode 132 of the Actual Fluency Podcast. Today I'm joined by my friend Josh Cohn when he talks about his experience learning languages and how he got interested in languages at, at quite an early age, which uh, is interesting for me as I also point out in the recording itself uh, because most of the people that I have on generally don't have good experiences when they grow up in school or a similar environment. Uh, most people, I think kind of you know they might do okay but then later on as an adult they realize what they were missing out on and what they were capable of as well so i hope you enjoy enjoy today's episode there's a bit a little bit more back to the basics of the podcast the language learning stories of people and as i've said many times if you have an interesting language learning story or if you've been learning a lot of languages yourself or unusual language learning story also do be in touch, send an email, chris at actualfluency.com, and I'd love to invite you to be on the show as well. Um, also, a quick note, today's episode is still so sponsored by Glossica. The folks over there have really been nice and supportive of my podcast and website for the last few years, so I'm really grateful for them. They offer audio courses in more than 50 languages, uses spaced repetition, and it's a mixture of sentences that you can learn by context, and it grades you on how well you're doing so it's a progressive system as well and it uses an algorithm to see where what kind of content it should be showing you so give it a try try glossica.com that's spelled g-l-o-s-s-i-k-a uh, that's try glossica.com uh, and uh, get you free thousand repetitions and if you like it it's a small monthly fee if you don't like it you know nothing lost <laughs> all right here's the episode well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the Actual Fluency Podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today and hear a little bit more about your language learning background and, and present. So why don't you start by giving the listeners a little uh, introduction to you? Uh, how was your background? How did you get into language learning? I began learning or became interested in learning languages when I was qu quite young, being born here in California. I... Uh, I've always been around lots of cultures and different languages spoken by my neighbors and everything. And uh, when I was really little, I, uh, in about, I think it was fifth, fourth grade, maybe, I began to take Spanish in school. Um, I went to a private parochial school and we had a, a very competent Spanish uh, teacher who came in and begin giving lessons, and I realized very quickly that I enjoyed it and seemed to have a knack for imitating and picking up what she was saying and repeating it, and not only repeating it, but remembering it and just thoroughly enjoying the classes. And uh, so uh, that was, I don't know, how old would I have been at that point? seven years old, eight years old, maybe. Um, and about that same time, somehow, I remember the story of how it actually happened, but I became interested in the country of China. And I began reading, you know, any books I could get my hands on about that, about, about the country and the culture. And, of course, the language immediately stood out to me. And uh, one of the first books... I read about language or having to do with languages and linguistics was 
uh, one of Mario Pay's books. And uh, I don't exactly remember the title of it at this point. I do have it here in my library somewhere. But <laughs> anyway, there was a short chapter on there about Chinese. And uh, there was no audio. I had no, I had no resources as far as CDs or tapes or anything. Um, but there was pronunciation given on the page, and I tried to pronounce it as it was written, and just you know kept repeating those phrases over to myself. And uh, the next day, or within the next few days, I went into a Chinese American restaurant to get some food with my family and when I left I turned to the lady behind the counter and I said uh, thank you very much goodbye in Cantonese and she lit up like a Christmas tree and she started rattling stuff off and I said hey, hey, hey. <laughs> this is about it I think I might have said, you know, Nahoma or something, but, and, uh, I knew right then that, uh, that there was something special there. You know, I'd made a connection and it was in, felt an incredibly powerful feeling to, to make somebody's day and get, put a smile on their face just by saying a few words in a language that I didn't really speak, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And those, those were the two languages that I, Spanish was first, and the first words, of course, I learned in, in a Chinese language were Cantonese. But very quickly, I realized that coming out of mainland China, you know, the majority spoke Mandarin, and that was a lot of what the instruction was in. The, the books I began to find or CDs given to me by friends or whatever, you know. And so I switched to learning Mandarin very, very, you know, basically right away. And uh, I think I still have a few of those first CDs that a friend gave me. He he had lived in Hong Kong and various other parts of China, and he knew Chinese very well. He was actually from my hometown here, and uh, he had given me some of his old learning materials, and I started teaching myself Chinese. At about eight years old. Wow. And, yeah, it was, it was fun. How did that go? <laughs> well, I, my approach for many years now, since then, but especially at that time, was I was very focused on speaking from the get-go, even if it's just a few phrases. And so it took me a while before I began to you know, delve into reading and writing and because I was focused on speaking and getting the tones, you know, getting the tones right in the language and, you know, just trying to uh, sound as natural and native as possible. And uh, so it was a, it was a good, good beginning at that point, of course. And you had some uh, audio materials by then to uh, to listen to it. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I had, um, I was, I'm just, well, how should I say it? I'm just 
young enough that I didn't have recourse to tapes, but it was just when CDs were starting to come out. So, um, you know, I was using them and it was, uh, had a computer. I didn't have a smartphone at that point with all the apps and things we have today, but, uh, I had some basic introductory courses and I started talking and next time we went into that same restaurant where I first spoke Cantonese, I pulled, I I started uh, saying some stuff in Mandarin and lit up all over again. You know, it was, it was a connection made all over again and it was, it was pretty special to be able to realize that. Mm. So what what kind of places or or yeah how did you make use of it in in the early days? I I imagine not much Facebook or MySpace pages in uh, in in uh, Mandarin. So did you seek out opportunities to use it all the time, or was it mainly you know repeating and shadowing the uh, the materials you had available? In the very beginning, yes, it would have been a lot of that, just using the materials and. Like I said, I I became very interested in the country itself, and so I, you know, every time I got my hands on a book about China, I'd read it. And uh, most of the time, you know, there's vocabulary at some point in the book that, and so I'd pick up, you know, phrases or or the odd vocabulary word, and next time I'd see somebody, you know, in a restaurant. Generally, that's how where it worked at that time because I didn't. I was young enough I couldn't get around by myself and I didn't have any I didn't know any you know Chinese people as friends really mm. and uh, I just you know see them in restaurants and things and um yeah it just I just kept building on on what little I had and and seemed to it seemed to stick you know it's pretty cool. So what what came next? Did you uh, I mean you're still pretty young at this age honestly a lot of the people who come on on here, they either they had some kind of very multilingual upbringing, so they had, you know, several languages in the in the house, or they mm-hmm. discovered what you discovered at eight. They might have discovered that when they left school, <laughs> they mm-hmm. were very bad in school and, and not interested in languages in school, maybe, and then they found it later. So, I would say eight is is very young to find that kind of passion. So, how what did you do after? Did you choose a, a language? Uh, oriented uh, future from there on or was it just Chinese for a while what what went on there um for the next few years it would have just been Spanish and Chinese um you know I was always interested in you know linguistics and I read I read many books about languages and you know picked up phrase books and different things but it was I never focused on anything else until um, going to, uh, Montreal in, what was it, 2010, maybe? And, uh, so yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have any, um, at that point, I didn't really have any plan or goal of what I wanted to do with, with these languages. (laughs) You know, I, I, it was just a kid's fascination. And since I did go to I, I, the Spanish that I did study, um, I took that for I studied that for seven years in, in my private school that I went to, church school. And uh, 
after that, I didn't uh, go on to pursue college or get a degree. I went to work on my family's farm and just helped out where I could. Um, we had uh, we had some Mexican laborers, some guys working for us. And even as a kid, I found myself taking on the role of interpreter sometimes and using what I knew to communicate between them and, you know, the boss, my father, whoever it was that was in charge of the day's work or what was going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know I made a lot of mistakes, obviously, but, uh, they seemed to enjoy helping me out and we were able to communicate and get across what needed to be done. And, you know, it, it worked out. Yeah. That's the, that's the beauty of language. I think <laughs> it's not about speaking perfectly or making no mistakes. It's about communicating a message between two people or multiple people. So mm -hmm. I think you hit kind of a, one of the secrets of language learning, if there is such a thing early on, is you mustn't be afraid of making mistakes because mm -hmm. then you just never speak. You just hold back. Yeah, you don't, you don't, in my view at least, you don't, you don't have a progress forward. I mean, if you're going to be scared to speak whatever language it is you're trying to learn, you know, what are you doing then? You're not, you're not learning the language if you're not going to actually be, in some senses, you're not learning the language if you're not going to be speaking it right. and being using, using it, you know, to be able to communicate with someone. I mean, you know, I, that, that brings me to uh, a, something I wondered about uh, during Langfest. You know, we, in the last five years, 10 years, the term polyglot has become much more widely used and generally, that is for somebody that speaks multiple languages. Correct? Yeah. That well, that's how you... I'll, I'll let you finish your thought because I have I have a, an extended <laughs> thought on this. So I'll let you finish first yeah. and then I'll, I'll jump in. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I remember reading a book one time. And on the back cover, on the back jacket, it... Uh, it mentioned the guy's name and that he spoke, you know, five or six languages, whatever it was. And then it said, and he can read another 12. <laughs> okay. So what is that? Yeah. It's not necessarily, I mean, yes, it's polyglot, but he's not speaking those languages. He's reading them. Mm -hmm. So he's in some ways, Perhaps he couldn't even write in them so well, but he could read them. So how would he communicate using those languages? You know what I mean? What yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Like the the definition is extremely uh, strange. Like I'll use my own example. Uh, Swedish and Norwegian is very close to Danish, so yeah. I can understand what they tell me, and I can also imitate it to a degree, and I also know a few words. But does that mean I speak those languages? 
Mm-hmm. Like so, if I only knew if I only knew Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian, let's say English and German as well, just to put it over f- uh, to five languages, would yeah. I, would then I be classed as a polyglot for having Swedish and Norwegian when they're pretty much identical? Like it's very little difference. I mean, it's big yeah. enough. It's big enough. It's mm-hmm. different languages for sure. Very different yeah. pronunciation as well. Um, but do they? Is it? Like with my level, do they count, or do I need to actually uh, s- spend some more time in those countries and and learning to speak them also? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it was something I had asked several of the uh, the other uh, participants this year at Lingfest, and uh, nobody really seemed was able to give me that much of an answer about <laughs> <laughs> what is somebody that reads. 10, 12 languages but doesn't speak them. <laughs> yeah, it must be a different... It's a different branch altogether. But I kind of see a polygon as more of a... I see it as more of a, a mentality, really. Uh, I, don't, I think you can, in my opinion anyway, you can embody what it takes to be a polygon, in my definition, even if you don't speak more than a language. If you speak one language and you're learning another one, to me, you can easily have the mentality of a polygon without having all the languages. Like I know yeah. that I know that you know that's what it's supposed to mean that you know I don't know five six or more languages whatever but yeah. to me the polyglots are really it, and maybe it's because we don't have an, a better word for it but to me it's just somebody who loves culture it's love um, languages of course uh, love meeting people um, all these things and usually very open and and uh, quite friendly people I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And the language bit, for me, always comes quite at the end, or maybe not even at all. It doesn't really, to me, that's not important at all how many you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just as we're talking now, I uh, noticed a book sitting here in my library, Navajo English Dictionary. <laughs> and that brought me to my continued fascination with the language of Navajo. How did you get into I, that? I don't speak it very well at all, besides a few phrases. I, I really shouldn't even say that I speak it, because I, I don't, you know. But it's something that I've always wanted to learn. And the reason is, is because back in 2008, I met a man in the state of Kansas that was a, had been, a teacher, he was a white man, he had been a teacher of Navajo to the Navajo people in one of the universities in the Navajo Nation. Okay, that sounds like a very rare individual. (laughs) Incredibly so. (laughs) (laughs) And in the last few years of his life, I, I actually... Well, let me back up. That didn't sound right. Um, In 2008, I moved to Kansas, and I lived there for six months. And that's when I met and got to know this man. And uh, we became really good friends. He was a very elderly man at that point. But I was privileged to know him in the last few years of his life. His name was Irvi Gosen. And he is the author of what 
has always been one of the defining textbooks for the Navajo language. And that's kind of where my inspiration or fascination with, with that language came from. Um, and so it's always been something that's been on my my to learn list, you know, something mm -hmm. that I want to I wanted I want to pick up and you know, maybe I'll never speak it very well, but in in this instance it's one where I'm probably will be able to learn to read it much better than I'll ever learn to speak it. Yeah. Because because I have nobody around here in California that I can visit with on a daily basis or even you know online that I found that many people that I can I can just, you know, learn the language, voc uh, speaking and listening that much. Maybe we should just, uh, I, I know most people listen to this, of course they know what it is, but do you want to just give a 10-second uh, explanation of the language, where it's spoken, what, what it is, just for the people who might not know what Navajo is? Sure. It's a uh, Native American Indian language, and I believe it's in the... I believe it's in the Athabascan language family. Um, it's it's a uh, tonal language, which a lot of people really don't realize. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that about Native American languages, well, Native Indian languages. Okay, well, let me let me just ask you about that, uh, not to make the whole episode about that Navajo, but uh, so. When I understand tonal language, I think Chinese, where each uh, word has different meanings depending on the tone. But as um, as our, our mutual uh, friend Michael Lever Harris also told me once, it, it, there's also quite a lot of tones in English. For instance, like you can change mm -hmm. the meaning of a lot of words in English, or at least phrases, with what tone you're speaking with. So, do you mean that is? Do you mean to say that it's a bit like Chinese, or is it? Like the like the English way, you can change the meaning of of words and sentences with with the. I don't know if that's a tone. Maybe I'm just uh, displaying my ignorance here. But uh, do you know what I'm I'm trying to ask? Yeah, um, it would be tonal in the aspect of Chinese. Okay, cool. So very defined um, set of tones. Though. Not, yeah, not as not as. Not for every word, like in Chinese, but uh, they don't. I think they have a few tones, three maybe. Um, but it depends on, just like with Chinese, it depends on how you say a word, what it means. Um, and like I said, I. <laughs> It's one that's always fascinated me. I just uh something I'm still hoping to learn more of someday. But uh I'm sure so, yeah, you will. that's I'm sure you will. Yeah. <laughs> and then you went to uh, Montreal, which is also where where we met. Uh, a little a, a little bit later though, but um you were in you were in Montreal and as uh, most people know, it's in part of the French part of Canada, so a lot of French being spoken there. I was actually surprised how, when I went there, uh, was it two or three years ago, just how how bilingual it really is. I think mm -hmm. I think if I had to ask people, the default language was probably French. Like if you just went up to someone and they didn't know, 
they would probably yeah. start in French. But mm -hmm. wow, was it multilingual or like perfectly bilingual? It's not like some part of the city was that and another part of the city was that. I just felt everywhere I went, people mm -hmm. people were just completely they were just switching between. You had different menus, you know, and and when I spoke in English to the people because I don't really know French that well, and mm -hmm. they just spoke to me in perfect English as well. So. It's a really interesting uh, dynamic, but how did you feel when you came there? Was it, did you say 2010? Yeah, uh, I believe it was 2010. I lived there for six months. Um, being taught, of course, standard French and hearing Quebecois spoken on the street was definitely a throw for me. <laughs> uh, but I found a few interesting things during my during my work there we would sometimes go out into the country and drive around visiting people and different different things and one day we stopped at an ice cream shop about oh i don't know two two and a half hours out of montreal and we went in to order some ice cream me and a friend of mine And unless they were putting us on, those people in there who were in their early 20s, just like I was, did not speak English. Oh, wow. Unless they were doing a really good job of faking it, they they had very little English. And what they had was, you know, what we'd say a strong accent, mm -hmm. whatever you want to say there. But you know what I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> and that was surprising to me because in the city... I wasn't speaking French very well, and so often people would just switch to English. And so I was able to communicate and get around very well. But everybody seemed to be bilingual, like you're saying. Everybody seemed to speak French and English and probably something else. Yeah. <laughs> and so going into that ice cream shop and ordering ice cream with limited French ability and It just that was just that was just surprising to me, you know, to to come across something like that. And of course now, you know, it's not not a big deal anymore. But at that time, it just it just floored me. I was like, wow. But uh, another thing I had I had noticed is in the evenings, especially on weekends, it seemed to me that the young people would switch into English frequently right during the day they'd use french Same but when it came people. time to, <laughs> when it came time to relax it switched into english as though it was the party language that's interesting and I, i i i i took note of that again this time when i was visiting there maybe it's just i don't know i mean that's what i'm i'm noticing i i would like to have you know some more feedback on something like that because maybe it's just odd instances that i'm hearing but it was that that also is kind of interesting to me how that worked yeah i haven't heard anything about that before maybe there'll be some uh what do you call them uh social uh majors out there who are studying these kind of dynamics social linguistics or something they're looking mm -hmm. into that I've never heard of that before. The same people you say in during the day would have one language, and then at night or in the evening when they were sort of off the clock, they would 
be more likely to speak in English? Yeah. Hmm. That, that, <laughs> you know, I know it, it sounds weird, but I've noticed that. And, you know, maybe maybe it's just isolated incidents. I, I, I Very likely it is, but it just seemed kind of kind of interesting to me. I picked yeah, up on that. For sure. What happened next? So how did you manage to switch up your you know your uh, france french and uh, and you turn it into something useful in, in in quebec or not quebec well quebec region uh montreal i never have i've never really learned all oh, right <laughs> so, so how, how long were you there for i was there six months oh okay yeah that's that's quite a, a short time when frame. i live when i lived there um but yeah i you know to this day i can read the language very well but uh, speaking, it's always been difficult for me. Right. Well, I can imagine. And I've, won- and I've wondered if it has something to do with that fact that, you know, I was learning something in, in the classroom and then going out in the street and they were speaking something totally different. It kind of like threw me for a loop. Like, hey, this isn't what I'm learning, you know. Right. I don't know. It's, it's a, something that just, I've wondered about that. Cool. So what, what that- was next? Another thing I found out in reading about French in Canada and especially in Quebec is that there's a there's a little law that the uh, any signs in that are you know everything's supposed to be bilingual but any signage the French letters have to be three times larger than the English letters. <laughs> okay. And that's actually a law. You can look it up. It's in their, it's in their, in their, uh, their, whatever, their language laws or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> They're a little bit protective of their yeah. local language. And, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people that don't even realize that even people that live there, I've, my friends and stuff, I've, I've told them that and they're like, really? I never thought about that. Never knew that. So it's just kind of interesting. Some of those things that, people do to and rightly so to preserve and maintain and perhaps enforce their language in whatever context they're in you know right well that's important isn't it because if if there isn't language preservation going on then maybe it would just all switch to english at some point yeah which is something that's happened for my mother tongue, actually. Okay. Did I say my my ancestral mother tongue? My ancestors come from Germany, and they would have spoken Low German oh. or Plattdeutsch. It's a great language. I love that. I believe it's spoken in Switzerland. Um, they call it Schweizerdeutsch, I think. Um, and that's one that I've never learned to speak. And so it's, it's a thing of, like you said, of, of switching over time into another language because the usefulness of one language is, you know, in a sense died out. You know, my great grandparents came here to the, to the U S and they would of course been fluent in the language. My grandparents are fluent but the only time they ever the only time they ever used it 
was to talk when they didn't want the children to understand what they were saying. Right. And so consequently, my folks never learned it on either side of their families. And so to this day, it's it's there as a relic. You know, it's I feel like I should know this language, but right. I have no reason to. Well, and because it's also I, not too useful anymore, I guess. Uh, it's hard to find, very hard to find. I, I had an interest in it myself because it's it's a mm -hmm. fantastic... It's a fantastic language that, if you know Danish and German, you just uh -huh. get you just you just get your mouth just drops when you hear a plat because it's like a mix of the two. Yeah, which is uh -huh. really which is really great. So I can understand why you want to get into that for sure. And uh, along the way, I uh, in in looking into that, I I've never I've never learned it because sadly I don't have any reason to. Um, there are still large populations becoming, you know, elder speakers at this point, but in parts of Canada and, uh, the state of Kansas, there's still a large population that would speak that language, which would have also been part of my culture of the Mennonite people that would have come over many years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anyway, I, uh. So in looking into in, in in looking into that language and wanting to you know study it a bit or whatever I did try to find classes you know or looked online for whatever resources I could and there's 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 some there's not many there's a few uh nowadays there's a few uh Facebook pages that are dedicated to it but there again, it's interesting because they're they are all the one Facebook page especially is in uh, I want to say Belize. Um, and there's a vibrant community of young people there of another branch of the Mennonite people that uh, are keeping the language alive and revitalizing it. And writing songs and poems and stories and things, and you can go onto Facebook or onto YouTube and listen to their listen to their songs and stuff. And uh, it's always fun to do that to see young people so active in a language that in America it's it's died out basically. Yeah, I can imagine that. So I said. Um... I guess that's related a little bit to the Pennsylvania Dutch. Or yes, yes, of... and no. Um, there would be some similarities, but it it would be it is a separate language. Um, they can communicate some. I've also tried to learn Pennsylvania Dutch, by the way. Yeah, I'd love to learn that too. I was at uh, when I went to uh, Langfest. Uh, I met you a couple of years ago. I was actually at the. Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch Museum. Okay. <laughs> there's a, there was a guy there who he he writes poems in the language and uh -huh. he does like mm -hmm. tours of a what a schoolhouse would have looked like uh, 150 years ago or something. It was, it was very interesting. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Not the most useful if you're sitting in in England, but uh, I can definitely understand your fascination with the language. Yeah, and to me, in a sense, it's. You know, if I were to double down and actually learn the uh, 
plot each, it's not a dead language. Right. So there, you know, there would be sense in learning. And I could go to Switzerland. I could go to parts of Canada. I could go to, you know, to Germany and different places and, and still very actively use it. Um, but at the same time, just sitting here in America thinking about it, it's, it's kind of like it'd be the same thing as if I started trying to learn Egyptian hieroglyphics or Akkadian. Right. Or <laughs> you know, what's the point <laughs> in, in one sense? Hello, guys. I just wanted to take a quick break here and give a shout out to the show sponsor, which is Glossika Audio Courses. On Glossika, you can try out more than 50 languages, and they have some really unusual languages as well, like Welsh and Manx, which is some of the newer languages. And these, by the way, are free forever because Glossika believes in supporting minority languages. Uh, they're not as big as you know the your typical French, German. English and uh, and Spanish courses, but they definitely do have some sentences on there you can learn. Glossika believes in spaced reputation and learning in context. So you're not memorizing anything. You're not looking at any complicated grammar rules. You're not trying to stuff your short-term memory. What it does is every day you go onto Glossika and you do your session, and it will run through a series of repetitions depending on where you are. So for instance, on the first day, you might get 40 repetitions. So it keeps showing you the same sentence and you listen to it as well. And then you decide if you know it or not. So you keep learning. And once you know the sentence, you can just skip it. And it will, the algorithm will keep updating so you get ch more challenging content for you. It's not really recommended for total beginners, I would say. I think it's better if you just had a little bit of work in the language before you move on to Glossika. But the method is pretty solid and it can be used at any level, um, even total beginners as well. Uh, it's a nice hands-off method as well. You don't have to actually click any buttons or type anything. You just sit, be fully focused, and with you know 20 minutes, half an hour a day, you'll make a lot of progress in the language of your choice. So go to tryglossica.com and, and give it a try. <laughs> and if you like it, it's a, it's a small monthly subscription, but you do get access to all their content. So it's not like you have to pay per language like some other services. So uh, go there and give it a try and uh, tell them that Chris sent you and I'm sure they'll be very happy. So what else have you been working on the in the in the interim, uh, have you done any more languages after you left uh, Montreal there in in two thousand ten, or did you spend most of your energy on making your other languages better? Um, always working on the ones I'm, you know, the ones I speak. Of course, I I use Chinese just about every day, not for work, just for you know, watching news or visiting with friends or reading articles. It's just. It, it's just part of my life. People here, they know me as the <laughs> the China guy. <laughs> right. And so it's just kind of part of who I am. Um, and Spanish, it's all around me all the time. I'm from California, you know. Sure. So, um, then another language that I should have picked up on a lot sooner than I did is the language of East India of the Punjab region. The language of the Sikh people. Mm, how did you get into that? Well, like I said, I should have picked it up a lot earlier because there's a large population of them right here in my hometown. Oh. And they've been here for quite a number of years. 
and uh, there's the the population is so large actually in this area, not just my hometown, but in the whole in all of California as far as that goes. But um, that we actually have two Sikh temples in our town, and our town isn't large, but we have a very large population, and of course many of them speak uh, Punjabi and also Hindi. And you know whatever else they would, whatever other language they might speak from the Indian continent. But uh, three years ago, a friend contacted me, and he wanted to know if I would be able to drive an older couple to a doctor appointment. And I said, sure, that's fine, I can do that. And so I did. Well, when we got to the doctor's office, the the man and the lady, they kind of looked at me and as they were getting out of the car, and uh, I found out very quickly that when I picked them up, they didn't speak English hardly at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of looked at me and I was like, you want me to go in with you? And yeah. And so I ended up going in with them <laughs> and filling out the paperwork. Because they couldn't read it. What? And I've been doing this now for about three years for the for the local uh, sick community. And it's not a big business. It's part-time. It's basically just a few families that I actually work for, you know, several times a week driving them around. But I'm trying to learn Punjabi. Right. And... In some ways, it's one of the more difficult languages I've ever tried to learn, including Chinese. <clears throat> what do you find from, especially difficult about it? Well, from the standpoint that I run into an interesting situation where I'm... Several things. There's, there's a large population here of Punjabi speakers. There's an older, you know, minority as they're as they're passing on, and then their children, and their especially their grandchildren, and even maybe their great grandchildren, they're growing up here in America. Mm-hmm. So they're still keeping their language as far as speaking, but reading and writing, that's pretty much gone by the wayside because they don't use it here. Mm except in some religious context, of course, for scripture reading or whatever. Those that would be, you know, would want to do that. Of course. And so what I find is that it's hard to find somebody to help me learn the language if I want to actually find a teacher. Because the old people, the, the elderly folks do not speak English or certainly not well enough to sit down and help me. They would have the time, but they don't speak. They don't speak English. Right. The, the young people don't have the time necessarily, but they still speak both languages. You know, English and Punjabi. Mm-hmm. And so they would be able to if they had the time. Right. And so. I, I sit here and I'm thinking, okay, I'm trying to learn this, and I'm trying to learn to read and write. And I ask people, you know, what does this mean, or how do you say this, or what's, and they're like, 
15, 20, 30 year olds, they come up to me and, or I go up to them, you know, and start talking to them and they turn and look at me and they say, you speak better Punjabi than I do. <laughs> and I'm growing up with it, you know? Right. And I, I don't consider myself fluent at all. I'm not even to, I wouldn't even say I'm to a B2 level at this point, but you know, it's, it's just an interesting situation. Right. And to, uh, to go online is, is obvious, you know, go online and try to find people to talk to. Well, there again, I run into a situation. I can talk to people in India. They're fluent speakers of the language. But they don't read and write it either. <laughs> they don't use the original alphabet of Gurmukhi, which is specific to the Punjabi language, to read and write their language. They're transcribing everything in English letters using the English alphabet. Mm. That's so interesting. And, How does that... That's that's so... I've seen, I've seen that with, with other things as well. It's such a it's such a strange concept if you're not part of it. Uh, I see, I've seen similar with uh, the Arabic maybe where the, the modern kind of text language is, is quite different to the book Arabic. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a, an expert on it. But... Yeah. As someone who doesn't know anything about this and doesn't have any languages that actually have these uh, facets, I, I found that ex- incredibly interesting that there's this degeneration going on of the language in a way, the written form anyway. Yeah. And not only that, but also because of because of English rule for so long in India, I don't know, but... English has come into the language in full force. I've had several people tell me in the last few years of trying to learn this language that 75 to 80% is just Punjabified English. Right. Where they're taking a word like telephone, and maybe they are using their alphabet to write it, because you can write... It's, it's similar enough in some ways to English to, that you can actually transcribe quite a bit and it's, you know, it's fairly close. So there again, what am I learning? <laughs> am I learning a native language? Or am I just learning a different way to pronounce words in English? You know, in some <laughs> senses, in some senses, that's what I'm running into, where I ask people, like one time, I asked a woman, I, I, I saw a dog by the side of the road, and I had learned just the other day how to say that in, in Punjabi. And so I pointed and I said, I said, Kuti, which actually is a female dog, I believe. But I said, Kuti. And she looked at me and she said, no. (laughs) And I was like, okay, Kinamhe, what is the name? And she said, doggy. (laughs) Sometimes it's easier to learn languages than we think. Yeah. (laughs) And yet that's what's in the, that's what's in the, the word kuti for a dog, for a female dog, is what's in the dictionaries. Right. When you pick up when you pick up a Punjabi English dictionary, that's the word you'll see. And that's not what they're using. <laughs> that's really so, funny. And uh, yeah, there's just, you know, numerous instances of things where 
I didn't realize this. I thought when I started learning Punjabi, I thought, oh, it's just, it's Punjabi and that's it. Right. Well, not at all. If you go into India, <clears throat> by way of online searching and visiting, you'll find out that there's dialects, which is obvious, but, you know, starting out with the language, you don't think about that so much because you're trying to learn, you know, whatever's in front of you. And so I'm learning words and phrases and things from people here. And I talk to f friends I've made in India. And I use those words and phrases. And they say, oh, you're not saying it right. That's not how we say it. <laughs> but I, I hope it's not as complicated as, as some languages are with the uh, slang and dialects. But what do you do? What kind of materials... But like, how do you choose what kind of materials to use if you let's let's say you you have a local community that's not in the home country of the language, uh -huh. and and you have different versions of the language around the world. You have uh, dialects and and things, and then you have textbooks. I presume that are probably standardized to a degree. So how what do you do as as an you know? American living in California trying to learn the language to what kind of materials can you even get that are even remotely reliable for, for your needs? It's been, it's an interesting question. And, um, at first it was difficult to, uh, I had to scour online to find stuff. Um, one of the first books I got was, a from the Patalia university in the Punjab, which is, a university that is specifically teaching and using Punjabi, trying to keep it alive and, you know, publish articles and books and whatever. And so I ordered this book from, from their company. It was an older book. It was used. It came over. And I began to look through it. <laughs> and I was looking one day for how to say the plural of man. And the word wasn't in the dictionary. <laughs> what? The word was not in the dictionary. There was no min in the dictionary. Okay. There was man, but no min. And so I went online. I went on to one of the Facebook groups that I'm part of, and I put up, posted a photo of the, of the dictionary and then a photo of the page that I was looking at. And got back replies that, oh, that's not a reliable dictionary anymore. That university isn't as good as it used to be back in the 70s or whatever. <laughs> um, you, you should try to look for other materials. <laughs> so I ordered a book online of you know, these 501 Spanish verbs, 501 Portuguese verbs, you know, these kind of books. And uh, this one was was for Punjabi. I got it. Very professionally done. Looks very nice. Opened up the first few pages. And what it was trying to do was give the word in English, the head word, and then it's English, what's the word I'm looking for when you transcribe something? 
into English, but it's still the pronunciation. Uh, and uh, okay. that'll work, I guess. <laughs> Transcribe? What? Transcription, yes. But that's what Trans- you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You confused me there. Sorry. And uh, then underneath that was a bunch of random symbols and things. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? This is not the native alphabet. This is not a native, you know, this, what's going on? And I quickly realized that this book, which was looked on the outside, very professionally done from someplace in India, had been misprinted. <laughs> the, misprinted. The, 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 when they tried to print the Gurmukhi words, their fonts messed up. And so there's not a single word in that book that is actually written in Gurmukhi. <laughs> and it's supposed to be. How does that even happen? That's <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and there again, I went online and I showed this book to people. And they were like, I was like, is there some way to contact the author? You know, is, does anybody know this guy? Who wrote this book? You know? It was a doctor so and so and and nobody knew. Nobody nobody could give me an answer. Cause I thought, well maybe they there's been a reprint. You know, but so what I'm saying by by these examples is that the materials coming out of the native country aren't necessarily the best quality. Right. And also I guess it's the it goes back to the idea you can't really trust in a nutshell, you can't trust anything, but, but I think especially when it comes to uh, older book resources, it's hard to verify how good the material is. Uh, and, and even to a degree, you see that today with more modern books as well, because uh, something like Asimil, you might see an, mm-hmm. a brand new print, looks like it was printed this year, but the text is actually from the the late, 80s or something you know and there's lots of things that have changed then not so much the language necessarily maybe but certainly the way people speak uh, slang and and that kind of stuff so a general word of warning i guess (laughs) to to anyone who wants to learn slightly more uh unique languages than than the than the usual regular ones yeah i uh i have found actually that I'm getting better materials out of Canada than I have from from India itself. There are families in Canada, Punjabi-speaking families, that are creating resources, children's books, and, you know, teach yourself videos of the language. And those are much, much better quality. Right. And so, of course, I'm availing myself of of those resources as much as I can. But it's just it's just interesting to me how how difficult it can be sometimes to to actually learn another language when you're probably like for me, you know, I, people have been complimenting me, man. You you know, you speak really well. You speak better than I do. Well, thank you, but you know, it's been pretty hard to get to this point, and I don't really speak it that well yet because I'm having a hard time finding good resources. Right. 
Well, do you find often that people will... Um, well, you talked about that in the beginning of the episode, didn't you, where the, the woman in the restaurant, when you said a few words to her, she lit up, you know. Do, do you still feel that today, or was that kind of a novelty moment back in the day? Oh, no. Oh, no, that wasn't a novelty moment at all. It happens all the time. It's one of the, It's one of the amazing feelings of being a language learner and trying to speak a few words of Punjabi or Navajo or whatever it is to see the person's face light up because it, it establishes connection and they realize, hey, you're trying to understand me as a person and where I come from. You're not just passing me by and thinking, oh, he doesn't speak English. You know, you're trying to make a connection here going past the face value of, of the situation or the person or, you know, whatever's going on. And uh, so it's very much, a, to this day, it's very much an integral part of what how I learned that I um, start speaking pretty much from day one. Right. I know, I know, you know, going to Langfest and reading other people's materials and their books and their blogs and how they do it, Everybody seems to have their own way of doing it. But I think in the end, what we're doing is we're all trying to get to the same spot. You know, to be able to make a connection. Yeah. I, I hear you. I, that's how I feel as well, anyway. And I always say to people, especially people a little bit on the fence about trying to learn a language or getting into it, I, I always say that Language learning is is a is an activity that re- rewards you from the very first lesson, and it doesn't it doesn't even it doesn't matter how good you are really. I just feel like mm-hmm. you walk into it could be a shop or something, even if you just know hello. I feel like you just you just make that instant connection with people. Um, I think there's a big difference in the cultures, of course. I I think the more exotic the languages compared to where you are the 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 more extreme the reaction usually i i don't get a lot of uh excitement when i speak uh, german in the you know in denmark or in germany uh but yeah. <laughs> but if i if i speak a bit of russian here in the uk it definitely gets a, a reaction um mm-hmm. and i i guess that that's it's it's really all about connections uh, mm-hmm. uh connecting to the world in, in a way and, and learning more about yourself. Yeah. It's tough though, isn't it? Like Very uh, much so. <laughs> it's a tough, uh, not the, maybe not the language learning aspect, but learning a language from nothing to something. That's a real uh, engagement. Actually, I wanted to, recently I've been thinking about writing a, a blog post called something like why you will never learn a language, which is a little mm-hmm. bit negative, but I think there's a point to it. Yeah. yeah, for sure, because it's it's like some people think that it's. I mean, I I appreciate people learning a handful of phrases when they go on holiday, or if they have like a a community where they want to you know connect, like we just talked about. But uh-huh. I don't believe that you can learn a language very effectively if you don't understand just the magnitude of the <laughs> the task ahead of you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Certainly something that I've been hit by when I started because I've been following people who maybe they've been doing it for 10 years, you know, or they, they, they published videos or audios that were 
very uh, edited to show a, a certain level or they specialized in a way of language learning, for instance, speaking, which is very mm -hmm. useful, very good. But if you can only speak to someone and not listen to what they have to say in, in reply, then you know you don't really have much in terms of a language code like the so-called youtube polyglots uh some of them are my friends but you know the people who put out videos of them speaking to the camera i don't mm -hmm. i don't like those kind of videos because it, it, most of them are scripted as well which is just stupid you know i could script a video in a language i've never spoken if i wanted to um yeah but with, moreover i think it gives people the wrong impressions like it, you you look at someone you don't understand all the work that's gone into it and there's not to be mm. negative about it either because i really do want people to get into language learning and i really want people to put the effort in i just don't want people to be kind of uh you know, what, what's the word i'm looking for um disappointed if they don't get anywhere and say three six nine twelve eighteen months you know because it's uh. a for me it's a lifelong pursuit uh the way yeah. i made sure not to fail language learning is i didn't give myself a deadline like mm -hmm. for a russian for instance i initially said three months or something silly to have a conversation yeah i, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that was, yeah that was fun yeah that was great uh, that just shows you how naive i was and i think maybe some people listening to this find themselves in a similar spot because they've got uh, a very I mean it's a very positive reinforcement to say that oh you can learn a language in three months or however long but in reality I think it's all about just continuing just keep going and just because some people know 20 languages uh, doesn't mean that you can do that tomorrow uh, but you can definitely get started today mm -hmm. and keep doing it a, a little bit at a day uh, I, I, what's your routine look like on a daily basis do you use uh, any kind of apps or do you just uh put a big session down on a saturday or how do you schedule your learning um that's one thing that i'm trying to get better at keeping a schedule let's put it that way um you know i have i have duolingo and memorize and a few of those that i use for some of the languages especially some of those where you, it's difficult to find resources. Um, but I try to get in at least 30 minutes a day at some point. Yeah. And if possible, an hour or two hours. It depends on generally in the evenings um, when I can relax and enjoy myself and, you know, pick up a book or listen to audio or watch a news you know, a news station or something on YouTube or, you know, whatever, whatever seems to fit my fancy and mood at that point. Um, so, yeah, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I, I want to do the same thing because I, I know when I do that, I, f I feel like the most progress. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I've realized lately is that was a big uh, focus on production when I started learning languages uh, there's a big focus on actually either speaking, well, usually speaking, actually. Uh, so you're you're very focused on, okay, what can I say in the language or what can I sort of understand also maybe. But what I always, or what I never prioritized was input. Uh, and now I try to do that at least once a day as well. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just five, ten minutes, you know, watching a YouTube video um, or whatever, uh, putting some subtitles on a Netflix series I'm watching anyway. I just try to get input because I've realized that for many of my languages, I have the vocabulary, I have the knowledge mm-hmm. to produce the language in a in a good enough way, but mm-hmm. I just don't have the listening experience to to sort of put it into practice. Mm-hmm. So for me right now, I'm really focused on for Russian to listen to stuff. Uh, I'm also reading, which is something I didn't do in the beginning. I got a a newspaper subscription to the this a uh, national Russian newspaper here, uh, so I try to read that a little bit. I can't read all of it, but I can usually get the gist of it. And then I mm-hmm. try to mark words I don't know, because yeah. a clever person once told me that if you want to get better at reading in a foreign language. You have to read in a foreign language, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so sometimes uh, people try to overcomplicate things, where they ask like, "Oh, why can't I read, or why can't I watch the news in this language?" And and the only way to get better at it is to to do the thing that you want to do. Of course, yeah. there's a hundred ways to do it, and if you did it, if you were like a super serious student who had lots of free time and you could really put in hours a day. I would go through the books or the newspapers or whatever that I was interested in and I would make mm-hmm. a word list of the words I didn't understand, look them up, mm-hmm. maybe find, maybe write down the sentence that they appeared in, in some kind of goal list method or some kind of spaced repetition list, just yeah. to sort of process it as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't really have that time right now, but for now, I just kind of try and get the input at least. So so that's what I'm I'm working on at the moment. Oh, very good. Yeah, and I'm, for myself, I'm wanting to get more into writing. Oh, yeah. Because I see others, some of my friends, fellow polyglots, fellow language learners, that do that quite a bit. And as I've said already, it's never been something that I've focused on. I've always been focused on speaking. Yeah. And yet as I'm seeing what they're doing and the progress they're making, and I think back to my school days in grammar school. That's how I learned English. Mm-hmm. I'd sit and write. We had we had spelling bees and we had spelling exercises and we'd sit and write stories and we'd and that solidified the words in my mind, you know. Yeah. And I realize now at thirty years old that you know I think I should start doing that. <laughs> I think I, I think I'd get, I think I'd get a lot further. <laughs> Do you know sometimes it comes full circle? It's kind of funny that way. Mm-hmm. You spend a lot of time trying to, I don't know if it's dodging the truth or dodging what you should do, but then you just realize at the end, wait a minute, what I need to do is do what I always did or what we did back then. And yeah. it's, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like the opposite is also true, I would say, where if you do too much, reading and writing like you did in school then you don't speak so there's always the it's always a catch you know you always have to be careful of that uh, balance yeah exactly there's there has to be balance in all things because otherwise it just won't work yeah uh, so so I, I i definitely think that that's something that i've learned i don't know if if people listening had the same experience I, i'd be happy to uh, hear more uh experiences about this how Basically, how did your approach to language learning change the more experience you got? Because when I started, I was super naive. I didn't know anything. 
I thought I could just, you know, learn a few phrases and look look like I was B1 or whatever after three months. And then mm -hmm. I would be terrible because I couldn't understand what people were saying. I didn't have good pronunciation because I kind of skipped that to speak faster. Um, and I never read or list, uh, uh, wrote anything. So my written language was also terrible. Um, I'm have, I would love to hear other people's opinions or experiences on that. Did you uh, kind of, did you grow as a language learner, I guess. It's kind of a leading question. Most people, of course, would be changing their language learning strategy or method as they go along. But I think the key revelation I had was just you need to, do, it needs to be balanced, first of all, like we just said. Um, but you need to work on the things that you want to improve. So if you mm -hmm. want to learn how to read, well, it takes a lot of reading because written language is not the same as the written language of the textbooks because those are usually dialogues uh, and yeah. you don't you don't get any written language from watching the TV or the news or anything um even the subtitles that you should not <laughs> you should not do too much of that because they are so confusing you know they're designed to be super short uh, they're not designed to uh, necessarily be a complete uh, what do you call it, like a literal translation? Or is that mm -hmm. the opposite? Like it's not supposed, you're not necessarily supposed to s uh, translate word for word when you're a subtitle translator. You translate the meaning sometimes because there's just not enough space. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's dangerous to use subtitles, I think. And also sometimes the subtitles are actually for a different language version. Uh, sometimes the, for instance, the subtitles might be translated from other subtitles and not the original language, which is kind of dangerous. So if you want to learn how to read, let's say, Harry Potter or, or whatever books you're interested in, Game of Thrones or... Lord the of Little Rings, Prince is popular. The Little Prince, yeah. Um, you should just read and obviously use the tools you have available, use your dictionary and uh, do it every day. I think that's that's kind of what I've figured out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. It makes sense to me too. Gotta gotta get the work in though. It's it's not something that that just happens. Uh, yeah, and that's you know that's one thing where I'm finding out that the older I get, it seems like the less time I actually have to sit down and and just study because of the fact of just having to make a living. Of course, yeah, and 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 then once in a while finding time to sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I get. I have the same feeling, you know, full-time job. And it's not necessarily the time always for me. It's also just the mental state, you know, where you worked eight hours, you started at 7 a.m., you come home, there's, a few, there's an hour or two before dinner, and then an hour or two after, and you just, you're just dead. You're just tired, you know. So if mm -hmm. you, and if you have, like me, other projects, like uh, multiple languages, of course, and an actual fluency, recording the podcast like this. There's really sometimes limited energy. And actually, it's one of my biggest, it's one of my biggest kind of uh, dilemmas with uh, producing content for language learning because there's no doubt in my mind that it, it, it prohibits me from doing as much learning as I would like because mm -hmm. I keep talking about learning, you know. Um, but at, at, the, at the end of the day, it's you have to find a balance. And if I can help, you know, hundred people uh, to learn languages better than I'd happily sacrifice a bit of my own learning, but 
it can be tough. I, I know the feeling of having a, a full schedule, maybe not necessarily, like I said, with the hours, but also sometimes just mentally, you know, you can't, you can't work all day, come home and then expect your brain to be super ready to study some, uh, I don't know, Turkish grammar or whatever people are up to. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it, it can be very tough. And, and what I always say to people is, one thing you can never do is be upset at yourself for how much you don't get done or how little you get done because you know you have to take care of yourself first and that means doing what you can when you can it and of course try to push yourself i always recommend that but a lot of people i see they get a little bit burned out after a few months and then they give up completely because they think they can't handle it and I think it's better mm -hmm. just to do a little bit at a time, just take it easy, just do mm -hmm. a little bit here and there, instead of trying to think that you're some kind of super learner that just suddenly can take on four hours of part-time learning a new language every day when you've never learned a language in your life. Well, except your main language, I guess, uh, mother tongue, I hope you've learned. Um, but yeah, I think people put too much pressure on themselves generally. And again, I don't think these YouTube videos are helping very much um, mm -hmm. because they're making it seem like if you're not it's fluent, yeah, yeah, exactly, because it's the, it's editing and and presentation bias uh, as well. So you've got or selection bias. You've got people who you, you they show you a ten minute video, and that could have been compressed of a year's worth of footage, maybe. So they show you the best of the best usually, and. It's just misleading, and you don't see the effort that goes into it. That's why I, I usually have. I mean, I, I love Benny Lewis. I'm a big fan, and um, I'm a friend, friends with him personally as well. But he, his, what he does is really like a double-edged sword because he really motivates a lot of people, I'm sure, and he really engages a lot of people that would not otherwise have studied languages on their on their own or traveled as much maybe. Um, but he also has this bad habit of showing only his successes and victories. He's gotten a little bit better at that lately. I've noticed that he put up a few slightly less super positive posts, which I think is really good to put it in perspective. But most of his YouTube videos are still there and, and, and people really need to be critical of of just what it takes so you can keep going and not have a burnout or breakdown completely like some people might i know i did when i started russian yeah i've uh, that's one thing i've noticed with attending langfest i love the i love it it's it's inspiration every single year but i've also noticed especially the first year that i all of a sudden felt this terrible pressure like <laughs> whoa you know I, I need to step up my game here these people are incredible yeah know? and <laughs> I had to come home and realize, hey, you enjoy your language learning as you enjoy it. Don't try to base it on somebody else's advancements or, or fluency or, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. You can't do that because if I let myself do that, I'd, I'd quit altogether because, you know, it, what would be the point? It, I don't, I don't feel like I'm up to their, to their level, but, but, uh. You can't perform to that level of pressure. Like that's just yeah, exactly. It 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 doesn't work that way. And so, for myself, I need to realize that you know, maybe I'll never be at a C two level in 
six languages or whatever, but I'm enjoying what I'm learning and I'm communicating. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and, and, and that's, that's to me, that's the most important thing. And, um, but, but thank you for coming on and, and sharing your, your perspectives and your story. I, I find it really interesting how, like I said earlier, that you got into this culture fascination with China and early on and how you've kind of pivoted that. And, I've seen you in in person. Uh, very impressed with the, especially when people know these very foreign languages. I'm very impressed uh, by by people's ability, and and I know that you you'll continue to do good things and uh, and uh, grow as a as a person. And uh, I can't wait to see you next time in around the world. Maybe in maybe back in Montreal. Who knows? Or uh, maybe in uh, in Europe. Sometimes you were talking that you would like to go if if it uh, if the opportunity came i would love to attend one of the uh gatherings or conferences over there in the european continent that would be a lot of fun yeah well, so yeah, yeah let's let's see who knows <laughs> we'll definitely see each other again some point. definitely yeah and we'd love to have you over here it's uh i know it's tough with the with the whole what is it the atlantic ocean and everything that always messes thing up things up for people but uh yeah, it's it's worth a it's worth a trip. Okay, very good. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you.